0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, soul Africa, amuka na una.
1: Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-metre band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-metre band to far west Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Moussa, Tabisa Luhoko, and Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, African Union Summit gets underway in Addis Ababa, heavy fighting erupts in South Sudan, and Lesotho's new party launched in the capital, Maseru. In economics news, African leaders to discuss financing of the African Union. And in sports news, the IU brothers lead Ghana into the AFCON semi-finals. But first up, the news with Anne Moussa.
2: A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. A rift has emerged between African countries over whether or not to pull out of the International Criminal Court. Several African leaders have spoken out against a draft African Union document that urges member states to collectively withdraw from the ICC. Last year, South Africa, the Gambia and Burundi announced their intent to withdraw from the Rome Statute. However, the Gambia has recently had a change of government while Nigeria and other African states say they believe the court has an important role to play in holding leaders accountable. The international community has repeated its call for an immediate cessation of hostilities in South Sudan. The appeal was made in a statement issued by the African Union, Regional Bloc IGAD and the United Nations following a joint meeting on the sidelines of the AU summit currently underway in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. TNPIN reports.
1: The three organizations expressed deep concern over the continued spread of fighting in South Sudan and the risk of intercommunal violence escalating into mass atrocities, as well as the dire humanitarian situation in the country. They reaffirmed their continued commitment to finding lasting peace, security and stability in the world's youngest nation. The partners stated that there can only be a political solution to the conflict within the framework of a peace agreement signed in 2015. They reiterated their call for an immediate cessation of hostilities and also urged the parties to ensure that the political process is inclusive, both for the implementation of the peace agreement
2: Thousands of supporters of a new Lusitu political party, the Alliance of Democrats, attended its inaugural rally in the capital, Maseru. AD was for founded by former deputy leader of Lusitu's prime minister, Pagadita Musasidi's Democratic Congress, Monyani Muleke. Muleke's support base is mostly young people, many hopeless and
3: jobless. <laughs> He says they have joined A.D. because it is forward-looking. She says she has joined A.D. because it has promised to fight corruption
4: and create jobs for young people. We support A.D. because we've been issued an, a promise that we're going to be issued jobs.
2: In another development, Lesotho police have dispersed supporters of the all Basitu Convention and Basotho National Party after protests at the Macedo border post with South Africa. They gathered to welcome back leaders who had been exiled in South Africa. Ndakwana Gatane reports.
1: What started as a celebration turned into a standoff. A line of riot police formed to barricade entry into the city centre. Some marchers tried to force their way through,
3: but police (coughs) threw a stun grenade. Scores ran away as police charged forward.
2: And finally, five people have been killed after gunmen opened fire in a Quebec City mosque during evening prayers. Police say two people have been arrested. Incidents of Islamophobia have increased in Quebec in recent years. In 2013, police investigated after a mosque in the Saguenay region of the province was splattered with what was believed to be pig blood. In the neighboring province of Ontario, a mosque was set on fire in 2015, a day after an attack. By gunmen and suicide bombers in Paris. That's the news. Headlines at 8:30 Central African Time.
0: Africa rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
1: Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The 28th Ordinary Session of the Assembly of Heads of State and Government of the African Union gets underway in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, today. Pre consultative meetings, sessions, and dialogues have been taking place ahead of the main summit that will host African heads of state and government, world leaders, and policy makers. African Union, heads of states and governments will also elect a new commission chairperson to replace outgoing leader Dr. Nkosazana Lamini-Zuma, five candidates in the race to succeed her. The heads of states will also vote on the readmission of Morocco into the AU. UN Special Envoy for the Great Lakes region, Saeed Jinnit, says this year's summit is important.
5: The AU is very important this year, you know, because there are number important decisions to be taken by the summit. As you know, they are going to discuss about the elections of the Commission, which is by itself a very important issue. They have other very important issues. But as uh, uh, especially, special I came here because uh, I took advantage of the summit to have a meeting of the guarantors of the uh, peace, security and cooperation framework, which is an agreement which was signed by the countries of the Great Lakes, plus South Africa and a few others. In two thousand and thirteen, essentially to promote peace security, cooperation and development in the Great Lakes, because of the history of the Great Lakes, as you know, the genocide in Rwanda, the wars in the DRC and the crisis successive crisis in Burundi as a result, they agreed on on a framework to settle all in a comprehensive manner their problems and on behalf of the Secretary General of the United Nations and there to support the region and the leaders of the region in promoting peace cooperation and development. That's the purpose. So I had a meeting of the guarantors of that mechanism, which happened yesterday, and they would like to seize the opportunity to meet some heads of state of the region to push the agenda of the UN in support of the region and the countries promoting peace, democracy and development.
3: The Great Lakes has had a lot of problems. Are we likely to see a change of leadership soon?
5: No, I mean, I don't think that it's not a change of leadership. That's a big issue, the issue of leadership. But what is of, of concern to us is the stability and democracy and development of these countries. So we, we, we are encouraging these countries, and one of my roles as special envoy is to assist and help in promoting peaceful, democratic, and uh, elections in the in the region. And as you know, this is one of the biggest challenges in the region because elections are not always taking place in the most uh, appropriate uh, conditions, as you have seen in Burundi and you are seeing in the DRC. The elections could not take place as. Uh, On time, and we are helping the countries, uh, the 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 parties in the DRC, to go through dialogue and to find a compromise um, for a peaceful solution and for a compromise to go for election as soon as possible.
3: Some people have said that President Kabila is dragging his feet. What's your take on that?
5: Well, now the elections have not taken place on schedule. There are, of course, there are positions that could be taken, but we we know that uh, there are differences and. uh, there is a risk of serious delay of elections and we want to uh, help the parties to come quickly with, the, with the, an agreement on the modalities and the conditions for the elections so that this election could take place as, again, as I say, as early as possible because we are de- already behind schedule.
1: That was UN Special Envoy for the Great Lakes region, Said Jinnit, speaking to Ntlantamallangu in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The leadership of the Pan-African Parliament has called on African Union member states to sign the amended protocol, granting it full legislative powers. They held a briefing on the sidelines of the AU summit in Ethiopia. So far, 10 AU member states have signed the amended protocol. African heads of states and government approved amendments to the protocol to the Constitutive Act of the African Union relating to the Pan-African Parliament in Malabo, Equatorial Guinea in 2014. From its launch in 2004, the PEP was intended to become the legislature for the African Union, which had created it as one of its several institutions for continental democracy and integration. More from Dr. Bernadette Lahai, Sierra Sierra Leone MP and PAP Fourth Vice President.
6: The slow pace of ratification is really a cause for concern because uh, there are a lot of things that uh, we cannot do as an advisory body. Because like all parliaments, we have the role of lawmaking, we have the role of representation, which we are doing, because we come from different African countries and we're representing the peoples of Africa. But then, you know, we need to also provide a robust oversight over the African Union activities. African Union uh, activities, uh, but we must have the legal basis to do that. And that legal basis is the protocol which needs to be signed and ratified so that it becomes a legal basis from which we operate. So we are concerned. We attend the African Union Summit uh, sessions every January and every uh, June, but we also we have mounted a, a, a huge... A campaign, advocacy campaign that will go to the different uh, member states to talk to them, to talk on their media, to talk on the the stakeholders, why it is important that the Pan-African Parliament uh, becomes a legislative body and we also talk to them about what is the Pan-African Parliament? What is the role of the Pan-African Parliament, especially in the African uh, Agenda 2063, which is the blueprint development tool for Africa for the next 50 years? Uh, our role is very clear. We should provide a legislative uh, framework. We should provide the legislative uh, oversight of that Agenda 2063 by ensuring that our national governments and the things we do, our programs and and policies are all aligned to the different pillars of the African uh, Agenda
3: 2063. Now, Madam, in your view, why is there so much reluctance from member uh, countries to ratify the bill?
6: Well, uh, we don't want to put it down maybe to reluctance, 100%, because uh, for this protocol, the revised protocol to be adopted by the heads of state. It has gone through serious scrutiny, first of all, from the ambassadors that live and work in Addis Ababa, the PRC. And after that, they turn it over to the executive council. This is uh, the foreign ministers, and they have looked at it. They have also made uh, suggestions, and then they return it back to the Pan-African Parliament so that we can incorporate the suggestions. We did that for two years before finally the document was adopted by the heads of state. And uh, after adoption, the next stage will be the Minister of Foreign Affairs, preparing the cabinet paper to their respective cabinets. But sometimes they also work with the Antony General, so that the attorney General will look into the device protocol to assure the Foreign Affairs Minister that there is convergence between the protocol and the national constitution because we don't want to adopt anything that will be at variance with our national uh, constitution. So, what we as parliamentarians can do can only use our parliamentary tools, you know, to call the respective ministers into parliament during question time to ask them what are they doing, why are they not uh, bringing the protocol to parliament, if there are any problems that they need to work on, is a role we can only do. Of course, we can also work with civil society to also pressurize the government that the government should always respect the documents they sign. They respect it by ensuring that once they have signed, they put the necessary machinery in place to ensure that they move beyond signature to ratification. Otherwise, we will just be accruing, you know, document protocols that will gather dust on the shelf and yet, you know, they are there so that they can solve Serious problems, you know, problems of democracy, problems of education, problems of agriculture, food security, problem of a healthy nation. These are all the things, you know, most of the legal instruments that have been adopted to, to address. So, of course, the protocol is just one. So, every time we come here, we we advocate, we also make presentation to the heads of state uh, about the slow pace of ratification. We hope that uh, your media The outfit will also put out this press release and generate national dialogue around it and maybe also engage the, the stakeholders, the lawmakers and the executives with regards to what have they done with regards to the protocol and what are their future plans.
1: That was Dr. Bernadette Lahai, Sierra Leone MP and PAP, 4th Vice President, speaking to Channel Africa's Nantamalangu on the sidelines of the AU Summit in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The fighting that erupted in July in Juba, South Sudan, has reversed all the gains that have been made and now the country is back to square one. According to former Botswana President Fistas Mokhai, who is South Sudan's Joint Monitoring and Evaluation Commission chairperson, the situation remains fragile. Mohai was speaking to the SABC on the sidelines of the 28th AU summit where the South Sudan conflict is amongst top agenda items. Africa's youngest nation has been rocked by civil war caused by political squabbles between President Salva Kiir and his former deputy Rick Macha. Senior political journalist Amos Pajo has more.
7: Five years after gaining independence, South Sudan is gripped by a civil war that has claimed almost 50,000 lives and displaced an estimated 1.6 million more people. The United Nations says the situation is almost near genocide. After the signing of the peace agreement, South Sudan has closed to 2 million South Sudanese outside as refugees and over 500,000 internally displaced. Mukhai says the conflict has stalled the country's developmental agenda.
8: The fighting that broke out in Juba on 8th and 7th and 8th up to 11th July last year reversed all that. All the institutions, the agreement institutions that had been created, including the government of national unity itself, which had been formed, all that was reversed. And we have been working at reconstituting these institutions including the government of national unity itself.
7: Mohaye says the previous government of national unity was not representative of all.
8: And so we're kind of back to square one where we are trying to reconstitute the agreement institutions and mechanisms uh, which had been created uh, but which fell apart when the fighting took place. The opposition has split
7: into two, one faction led by Dr. Rick Macha and the other led by General Taban Deng. The Taban faction has joined the government of national unity whilst Masha has fled the country and is currently in South Africa. However, Mohai says Machar remains a key figure in the South Sudanese peace process.
8: His people, his followers, his previous followers, are still, he still has influence with them, including some of the fighting people including the 700 that are stranded in in DRC, but others inside the country. That is why there is fighting all over the place still, so that um, peace cannot be attained to his total exclusion. No, he still has influence.
7: Warring parties have requested South Africa to provide material support, while efforts to bring back stability are being sought. Meanwhile, Mohaya says the situation remains fragile because, amongst other things, the economy has collapsed, the humanitarian situation is dire, and the country is dependent on supplied food from neighboring countries, including Kenya and Uganda. I'm
0: Amos Paho in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Canal Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine.
4: I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia.
0: This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe.
9: Noel Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa.
0: From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Selozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is
9: Moki Kinzaka.
0: In Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa.
9: In And
3: I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa
1: in Mombasa.
0: Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
1: It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. On the frequencies, 7.230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 90... Meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. At least six Juba government soldiers have been killed in fresh heavy fighting taking place in South Sudan. The fighting pits rebel leader Riek Machar's fighters and troops loyal to President Salva Kiir. James Mangula reports.
10: The ongoing fresh fighting between rebel leader Riek Machar's fighters and President Salva the troops is taking place in Kajokeji town and its outskirts in South Sudan's newly created A region near the country's border with Uganda. The fighting hinges on each side yearning to take control of strategic places in the town and its surrounding areas. Each side blames the other for starting the fight. Acknowledging that indeed at least six government soldiers have been killed in the fighting is the Information Minister Stephen Onesmas Lado.
11: Two of the soldiers of the government actually were killed. But in the process, uh, the people were repulsed and uh, there was uh, an arrest of their
10: commander. So their commander is now under custody. The commander that the government information minister says is now under custody is the rebel commander fighting on behalf of rebel leader Riek Machar however his name was not given by the government information minister so far more than 20000 villagers have abandoned their homes and crossed into neighboring uganda to seek refuge as the head of kajokeji episcopal church emmanuel marial explains
9: all oh, right now people are really moving out in big number. And uh, even in our compound here, a lot of mattresses, some little small food that they cultivated, and then uh, children actually are even suffering from it moving to Uganda. So the situation here is very worrying. It is a pity to... These people moving, leaving the country which they have actually voted for independence. And they are now like sheep without shepherd. As the president announced the uh, time for dialogue, I think if there are problems, they
10: have to dialogue. Rebel leader Riek Machar's overall military commander in the theater of ongoing fighting in Yay region, is Colonel William Deng. He confirms that heavy fighting is raging there and claims that government troops are roaming villages, plundering property and raping women as well as killing innocent civilians.
12: The government forces use used always to go outside killing the innocent people, raping ladies, young ladies. So it's not true for the government forces to claim that the uh, hero forces I
10: know I'm doing that. Not true. that was Colonel William Gadigyoko Deng, overall military commander, representing rebel leader Riek Machar in the ongoing fighting in South Sudan's Kajokeji town in the newly established Yei region. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula.
1: The African Union Chief Mediator, former South Africa's President Thabo Mbeki, says after a marathon of discussions, the government of President Omar al-Bashir and the opposition groups have agreed in principle to constitute an interim government. This on the basis of appointment of a prime minister as head of government reconstitution. Constitution of legislatures as well as drafting a new constitution. The conflict began in 2003 after African fighters took up arms against Sudan's Arab government, accusing it of discrimination against black Africans. Despite the fighting easing in the last several years, the UN estimates that 300,000 people have been killed during the conflict, 4.4 million people need aid, and more than 2.5 million have been displaced. Amos Pajo reports
7: in august last year the sudan opposition and armed groups signed the roadmap agreement which was endorsed by the government however the parties failed to reach an agreement on cessation of hostilities and humanitarian access the sudan mediator says the outcry by the armed groups on these two issues were legitimate the armed groups said they took up arms to address these issues and now they must be addressed even after the doha agreement the armed groups complained that they were not involved And this time around, it was agreed that they make proposals which will be attached to the Doha
11: agreement, Mbegi elaborates. So it wouldn't be difficult to conclude a cessation of hostilities agreement in Darfur once they can agree on the amendments to the Doha document. Now, what's what's delaying that is that the armed groups have not made the proposals that that they've been given an opportunity to make. They've not made them. So that process is stopped because of that. With regard to... uh, Uh, the two areas of Blue Nile and uh, South Kordofan, and therefore the SPLM North, what's outstanding is the SPLM North has not accepted proposals that have been made to solve the humanitarian issue, which was an obstacle in August last year to concluding the cessation of hostilities agreement. So again, we're waiting for the SPLM North to come with a proposal on this humanitarian assistance thing, which can then be discussed, so that they can then sign.
7: On the political side, the armed groups demanded the drafting of the new constitution. The government and opposition parties have agreed and the possibility exists to draft a new constitution.
11: We've discussed that with the government of Sudan. We say, all right, we see what you people are planning, but it's important to include the excluded ones. And the only way to do it is not just to invite them, but it's actually to engage them in a discussion of this. For instance, if you say a transitional government, which we understand, you must meet them to say, how do you constitute it, this transitional government, so that it's commonly owned by everybody. So the government of Sudan has agreed.
7: Mbeki says they have agreed in principle, and the panel will be convening a meeting with all stakeholders.
11: We are convinced as a panel that if you have sufficient political will, in reality, practically, it would not be difficult to reach an agreement on these matters.
7: Mbeki emphasized that the high-level implementation panel will do its utmost to broker solutions to the problems of Sudan. am Amos Paro in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia.
1: It's 827 Central African Time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The issue of child marriage in Africa will be a topic for discussion at the African Union Summit happening in Ethiopia. A campaign launched by the AU in 2014 has reportedly made progress and more African countries are appreciating the value of allowing girls to stay in school and get married when they are adults. Kaleta Wanjohi reports. Africa is home to
3: 15 out of 20 countries with the highest rates of child marriage. Statistics show that every year, 15 million girls are married off before they turn 18, with devastating consequences for their health, education and well-being. The African Union spearheaded a campaign against this vice in 2014. It aimed to support policies and actions that protect girls' human rights and to remove barriers to law enforcement. AU Commissioner for Social Affairs Siddiqui Kaloko says progress has been made in the past two years.
4: What is most obvious right now at the moment is the impact that those launches is uh, uh, having on the other member states. When we started off, most member states thought that uh, child marriage is not actually a problem. You know, But then when we explain things to them, they go back, carry out the statistics in their country, and then they will come running saying we need to launch it because this was a problem that was not known or the impact of it was not actually appreciated by even the people living in those countries.
3: Across Africa, 39% of girls in sub-Saharan Africa are married before their 18th birthday. 13% are married by their 15th birthday the consequences of marrying as a child affect girls throughout their lives marriage often marks the end of girls education limits her economic opportunities outside the home and exposes her to physical sexual and emotional violence commissioner kaloko says that now more than ever many agencies are willing to support the continent completely to abolish child marriage
4: it has brought it on the highlights, particularly with our uh, partners you know now We have a coordinated and concerted effort because once you launch, then your programs can be looked at a little bit more closely by the partners. We've had very good examples of that. We launched in Sierra Leone, for instance, and the first lady came up with the idea that, (coughs) beg your pardon, a shortcut to the member states could be if we also work together with the regional economic communities. So from the centralized African Union itself, If we have also sub-regional launches, say ECOWAS launches, there is something like this already in the SADEC region, and then ECOWAS launching, then now we've taken it from the African Union to the sub-regional levels, and then easier for the member states when we do that.
3: Countries where the campaign exists now include Burkina Faso, Chad, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Ghana, Madagascar, Mali, Niger, Senegal, Sudan, The Gambia, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. Kole to enjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa.
0: Channel Africa, the voice of the African renaissance.
3: Kulta Addis Ababa.
0: Africa rise and shine.
4: I am Hilda Kekeloa
0: in Zambia. This is
9: Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean Noël Channel Africa, Kinshasa.
0: From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi, informing the world about Africa.
3: In in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa.
0: Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. At eight
1: thirty-one, and our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
2: A very good morning to you in the headlines. A rift has emerged between African countries over whether or not to pull out of the International Criminal Court. Sudan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs has issued a statement regarding U.S. President Donald Trump's executive order banning Sudanese and citizens of six other countries from entering the U.S. for at least 90 days. And five people have been killed after gunmen opened fire in a Quebec city mosque in Canada during evening prayers. Those are the stories making headlines.
1: Thank you, Anne. Wetlands are often undervalued and overlooked in society, yet they're so important. South Africans will experience some of the beautiful basics of wetlands at the 3rd Annual Flufftail Tail. Festival taking place from tomorrow until the 6th of February. The event takes place in Maponya Mall in Soweto, southwest of Johannesburg. World Wetlands Day will also be marked on the 2nd of February, aimed at raising awareness about a critical resource of water, threatened habitat such as the wetlands, and endangered birds, especially the white winged flufftail. BirdLife South Africa, ESCOM, and Randwater are collaborating in hosting this year's Flufftail Festival. To talk to us more on this, we're now joined on the line by ESCOM Environmental Manager Deirdre Herbst. Deirdre, good morning and thank you so much for joining us. Now, Flufftail Festival, tell us more about this.
13: morning, Lily, and, uh, and to your listeners as well. Um, the Flaftail Festival, like you said, it's the third year that we're doing it. And um, this year is at Mepanya Mall. And what's exciting about this year is that we've added to the program. What, what it is is that there's a, a maze that um, people can walk through, and each corner of the maze has um, a new bit of information about wetlands, about birds, about what people get from wetlands. Um, but in addition to that, we've got a puppet show that Sturk and Corps have been kind enough to um, provide their facilities. And we'll have lots of school children from um, the Soweto area coming in every day. Um, we're hoping to have more than 1,000 children visiting the puppet show. And the puppet show itself is also about um, people learning, um, children learning through an interactive way how important wetlands are. So, you know, it's something that um, ESGIM's activities do have an impact on the environment. So we put a lot of effort into making sure that uh, we give back and that we also try and, together with communities, um, find a way of looking after our wetlands.
1: Now, Deirdre, you've just answered my next question, but now let's go back to the venue that you've, uh, you've, you, you're using this year, Maponya Mall, um, southwest um, of uh, Johannesburg, a very one, uh, the biggest uh, um, location in the country. Tell us more about what went into you deciding on the venue.
13: Uh, okay. So we our first year that we started this, we actually went to San City. And um, while it was quite successful, I'm not sure that uh, the audience was quite the right audience for this kind of engagement. And in that year, we didn't really have any school children involved. Then we moved um, across to to centre last year, which was also a very successful engagement. That's when we introduced our um, our maze, and the maze was um, amazingly successful. Um, but this year, we decided we um, need to go to um, into an area where communities may be more directly impacted by the um, by you know the degradation of wetlands. I mean, if we see when we have flood events, for example, um, often people living close to the river are negatively impacted by floods, but um, wetlands are actually critical to uh, reducing the movement of water and reducing the impacts of, of floods um, in some low-lying areas. Um, and then, um, you know, we, we, uh, we're kind of trying to find a home for the Fluffdale Festival that's, um, that's appropriate, and um, I'm hoping that Wall is going to be something that we possibly consider using in the future as well.
1: Now, Deirdre, you just uh, touched very lightly on the importance of wetlands. Can you kind of go into detail as to how exactly does it assist in maybe um, preventing uh, floods and things like that? Can you just give us a little more information for our listeners?
13: Yeah, Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, people often don't realize that they are living close to or um, sometimes in a wetland. Um but um our development um over over time and also when we do agriculture has led to destroying wetlands. And um it's estimated that over fifty percent of wetlands in South Africa have been destroyed, but internationally there's also a figure that sits around between forty and sixty percent for um for other countries. So I would imagine that the rate of Africa is, is not dissimilar. And what you often find is when um, people start wanting to plant plant crops, they will actually drain wetlands and plant the crops in the wetlands. But um, why they're so important is that when you get really high rainfall events, the wetland actually captures and slows down the the movement of water, which then prevents the downstream negative impacts of, of floods. I mean, in Mozambique, we've seen a few years where we've had devastating floods where a lot of people have been um, have been moved out of their homes, et cetera, because of the significance of it. But what wetlands also do is that they they filter, they lack a filter and so they filter pollution. So if there's any upstream pollution that's going through, if you've got a wetland that's in the in before you know, you get to a river, then the wetland is actually cleaning the water which is far better and far more economical than um, having a water treatment plant to treat the water and keep it clean. And then obviously from a health perspective in Africa, you know, we, we get uh, lots of diseases from um, waterborne diseases, and work hands help to clean the water and prevent that. So they are really, really important uh, parts of our ecosystem.
1: Now, you mentioned earlier the fact that uh, people who have attended the festival so far have been quite excited about the maze. What, Which specific issues do you hope that people attending the festival will take home um, with the maze and the fact that it's at different points of the maze there's information or uh, infotainment or edutainment, so to speak? Uh, do they understand exactly what it is, and what are they taking home with them, especially with the, the young kids from schools?
13: Yeah, I think um, there's obviously, there's each, each part of the mail has a different message on it. And so what we are trying to, first of all, put um, forward to the children and, in, and, and, of course, adults, because we need to be educated as well, um, is first of all the importance of wetlands, but then all of the important aspects linked to wetlands. So, for example, how we as, as people uh, require wetlands for our survival and um, in more rural areas for sustainable living. So we put that message across. And then we also make the linkage of um, how important wetlands are for birds and for um, conserving um, greater ecosystems. Um, ESCOM also has done quite a bit of work in... Um, what we call the Angula partnership is a partnership with BirdLife South Africa, which has been going on for more than 12 years. So we will also be sharing our experiences of how we've partnered with NGOs to ensure the um, conservation of a very large wetland in the dry and um, So there's, there's a combination of different messages. And I think the um is also going to give that extra message of sort of personalizing um, the wildlife and the bird life within a wetland and um, because it's all about um, a fluff tail and how they, they go on a journey to find the fluff tail.
1: Deirdre, thank you so much for joining us and all the best with your festival and I'm sure we'll touch base once the festival is over and find out how it went and if you've reached the targets that you were hoping for.
13: That's wonderful and I hope um, everyone's going to join us. It's Starts tomorrow. Yes. So we're really excited that uh, this is going to be a very really successful plant
1: health festival this year. All the best, Deirdre. Thank you so much for joining
13: Thank us. Thank you
1: so much. Okay, that, bye. that was Deirdre Herbs, environmental manager at South Africa's power utility Eskom.
9: Channel Africa, Blantyre.
11: This is Lansana Fofana, reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in
9: Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaundi.
0: From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Selozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about
3: Africa.
0: <laughs> 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 <In> <laughs>
9: reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi.
0: Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
1: The protection of the rainforest needs to be one of the top priorities for the UN Environment Programme, UNEP, in the year ahead, according to its executive director. Eric Solheim said trees with a critical part of a battle against climate change since around 20% of global carbon emissions are being generated through the destruction of rainforests. Solheim initiated the Global Coalition to conserve and promote sustainable use of the world's rainforest, known as the UN Programme, on reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. He spoke to Rosemary Musumba about what can be done and started by telling her about his plans to get people and the private sector more engaged on UNEP's agenda.
14: If you ask for two ways I want to change the way we operate in the United Nations, one, we need to be much closer to people to engage with citizens. Then we need to speak a language people can understand and we really engage with them. And secondly, I want to be much closer to the private sector and business because business is a driver of the environment and many companies are well ahead of governments when it comes to environment action and if you ask about issues pollution is at the top of our agenda uh, People, 7 million people are dying on planet earth this year prematurely because of pollution we need to fight it and we need to fight it hard uh, and landscapes and the protection of nature of iconic species like tiger or elephant or pandas because also the rainforest and all the vulnerable uh, nature on, on this uh, one planet that we share
3: together. One of the things that you talked about was the rainforest. You particularly cited the one in Indonesia. I think rehabilitation uh, as we talk of the climate change. Could you zero in on some of the things that a member states need to be knowing and doing and we as a civil society should be doing?
14: One area where we will achieve a lot of the global goals, of the sustainable development goals, with one action, it must be the protection of the rainforest. That's critical for climate change, because nearly 20% of the carbon emissions on the planet comes from destruction of the rainforest. Critical for endangered species. I mean, the orangutan, for instance, just can only live in the rainforest in Indonesia, and no other place uh, on the planet, and it's critical for pollution because uh, burned rainforest is one of the biggest pollution problems in, in Indonesia itself and in neighboring states like, like Singapore. So we need to step up, working with the business, working with the government, and really uh, set out the policies of the Indonesian government, which are now very, very well suited for resolving the problems.
3: You talked of um, the international community uh, and development community tapping into the resources there that are available, working with the private sector, and you also just mentioned that uh, in tapping almost, uh, did you say $20,000 billion that may be available? Private
14: investment in the world in this year is $20,000 Development aid is $150 billion. so of course the 20000 is much, much, much more than the 150 billion. So we need to work a lot more with the private sector to assist them in greening their operations. And of course there is a lot of hopeful developments. Google, maybe the most iconic of all companies on the planet, is will be 100% renewable this year. The average person should mobilize politicians and put pressure on them and ask them to go green. The average person should, when you go into a supermarket, you should ask for the greenest product, whatever you... And then you may also uh, uh, active, be active in your local community.
1: That was UN Environment Programme Executive Director Eric Solheim speaking there to Rosemary Musumba.
15: And I'm Tabisola Hoku with an economics update. Good morning. Financing of the African Union is an agenda of discussion at the 28th Ordinary Session of the Assembly of the AU Summit in Ethiopia. The continent is working towards practical avenues of raising funds for its own operations using a levy system, an aspect that is proving challenging. Coletta One Joy reports. We apologize once again for a lack of sound there. Etel Kenya says it's not among the African unit, units of the parent Barty Etel earmarked for sale this year. Barty Etel says that the giant owned telco is considering measures and sales of stakes in some of its operations in 15 African countries. The plan is to make the African business, which it acquired from Kuwait's Zane in 2010, a 9 billion US dollar company. The International Monetary Funds Managing Director, Christine Lagarde, says Uganda needs to tap more of its domestic revenues to fund infrastructure development because reliance on borrowed funds is unworkable and could lead to a spike in debt. In recent years, Uganda has ramped up external borrowing, mostly from China, to finance ambitious infrastructure development. Chinese credit is funding projects ranging from expressways and hydropower plants to airport expansion. The South African government has warned businesses to employ a majority of South Africans. Home Affairs Minister Marusi Kikaba says government will not disrupt migration to South Africa, but he says that businesses may trigger tensions when they overlook competent South Africans for jobs. Kikaba was speaking at a media briefing in the capital, Pretoria.
9: There's a number of companies in this country that are flouting our immigration laws. They have business visas in terms of which they are supposed to employ 60% South Africans but have not. In actual fact, their companies are 100% non-South African. We need to be able to inspect companies, to send our inspectors so that we can impose necessary penalties and ensure that companies comply with South Africa's immigration laws.
15: One of the world's largest mining companies, Anglo-American, says Namdeb Holdings' diamond production has increased by 6% to reach 428,000 carats in the fourth quarter, ended December the 31st. Namdeb is a joint venture between the Namibian government and Beers, a unit of Anglo-American. On figures released... On a yearly basis, the production decreased by 11 percent to 1.57 million carats from 1.76 million carats. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.45 in South Africa, 10.45 in Botswana, 9.79 in Zambia, 7.9 to the British pound, 8.1 to the euro. Gold 1,000, $1, dollars Platinum 981 dollars an ounce. Brand crude oil five five dollars three five cents a barrel. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, my name is Tabiso Lahoko.
1: A sports update up next with Figi Leningwati.
9: We begin our update with football news. Egypt edged Morocco 1-0 in Port Gentil on Sunday night to advance into the semi-finals of the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations. The Pharaohs' first win over their North African rivals for more than 30 years was secured by a late goal from substitute Mahmoud Karaba Abdel Muneim, setting up a clash with Burkina Faso in the last four on Wednesday. Morocco looked like the likelier scorers through the second half, but they needed Mohamed to make another remarkable save to deny Salah in the 77th minute after a brilliantly executed free-kick routine had handed the attacker a clear scoring chance. However, there was nothing Mohamed could do to stop Mahmoud Karaba abdel from scoring the decisive goal in the 88th minute. The substitute prodded a loose ball home from close range after some poor defending at a corner kick by the Moroccans. Michel Dussaillier has stood down as Ivory Coast manager following his team's early elimination at the Africa Cup of Nations. The reigning champions were knocked out after losing 1-0 to Morocco. The Frenchman's decision to resign after 18 months in the job was announced by the Ivorian Football Federation. The Elephants failed to register a win in Gabon after draws with Togo and the Congo and the defeat to the Moroccans. The Federation Statement praised Dusay's professionalism, commitment and human quality, adding that the appropriate measures will be put in place to find his successor. And Rugby Springbok Sevens r- player Ruhan Nel made a stunning impact as a substitute to score a brace of tries as the Blitzbox searched their first Wellington Sevens title in 15 years and only the second in history with a 26-5 win of Olympic champions Fiji on Sunday. And South African wheelchair tennis top junior Aloandes Kosana did the country proud as he made it to the semi-final stage of Crife. Foundation Junior Masters played in Tabe in France, losing 7-5, 6-1 to Ruben Spagaren of the Netherlands. Skosana sums up his experience and performances in France.
11: The weather's been so freezing, so, so freezing. I felt like going back home, but uh, I had to get the job done. Um, I was was so, so, so cold. The weather, again, I'm not used to it, Like, but I had to... Actually, I, I, I brought the warm clothes, so, yeah... I was a little bit warm, but were, the weather was, like, so, so freezing. Um, I think um, I'm very happy about my matches because um, I think it's much better than last year. And I tried to bring uh, – actually, I brought uh, best performance, uh, fought for each and every point in each, in each and every game.
9: And in netball news, South African netball team narrowly lost to England 60-55 in overtime in the opening match of the Quad Series at the International Convention Centre in Durban on Saturday. Michael Flissma's reports.
11: The Spa-Proteers came desperately close to their first victory over England in four years in a thrilling match in the Quad
15: Series in Durban on Saturday. The Pretiers ranked 5th in the world, fought back from an 11-goal deficit against the world number 3-ranked team to end in a 48-all draw. That took them to extra time and England claimed a 60-55 victory. But Pretiers' coach Norma Plummer was full of praise for her team's performance against a side that has traditionally had the measure of South Africa.
13: Well, it wasn't a bad turnaround because uh, we were 11 down at one stage there. So, um, yeah, they dug deep, um, they listened to instruction, and they delivered. I was very proud of them.
9: Michael Flismus Durban. Finally with tennis news, Serena Williams won the All-Williams final, the ninth in Grand Slam history and the second in Australia, 6-4, 6-4 on Saturday night. Serena Williams held up a Grand Slam winner's trophy for the 23rd time, celebrating her unrivaled place in history and received a congratulatory letter and a pair of custom-made shoes from Michael Jordan, the name most synonymous with number 23. Venus Williams got to watch from close range again and shed tears more of joy than regret after being beaten in a major final for the seventh time by her record-breaking younger sister. That's your Sport News this hour.
0: AFRICA RISE AND SHINE AFRICA TORNA AFRICA AMUKA NA UNAI
1: Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, the African Union Summit gets underway in Addis Ababa, Heavy fighting erupts in South Sudan, and Lesotho's new party launched in the capital, Maseru. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers and and Tutongobeni, technical producer Maria Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band 2 southern Africa is Trezor with a song titled Never Let Me Go. I
12: me, so never let me go. is it true you make this all beautiful ah, see the moon and the stars to shine for you Is yes, it's true you make this all beautiful never let me